Hey everyone, Hoppo here. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to get into the studio because of the COVID outbreak, so the quality of these episodes may not be as good as usual. But stay safe, and uh, we'll get through all this together. Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad, and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way, and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, if you're a footy fan, you'll know this guy, Owen Craigie. He was the most naturally talented football player. He ran 100 metres under 11 seconds at 14 years of age. He debuted for the Newcastle Knights at 17. By 19, he had it all, houses, cars, money. But by 26, he was burnt out, retired and lost everything. Listen how OC has turned his life around by helping others, himself, and the communities dealing with day-to-day life. Now let's have a listen to my chat with Owen. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure and a warm welcome. We've uh, had a lot of mental health issues, especially during COVID over uh, the recent 18 months. I thought the perfect person to get in who's been working very hard in this space is Owen uh, Craigie, mate, how are you? Big O. Hey, hello. How you going, brother? I'm good, man. I'm good. Oh, mate, it's up. Thank, thank you for coming on. And, and we're going to go through the uh, the Owen Craigie story and yep. touch on, you know, obviously your football career, then also into the mental health side of things. And as you know, so many sportsmen, even people just out in the community are struggling uh, with mental health. So let's go back to, you know, when you were 19 and absolutely at your peak, you had the money, the houses, the cars, you had the fame, and you also won a premiership. Life was good. <laughs> <laughs> life was good. <laughs> life, life was fantastic, mate. But uh, so the perception from everybody watching you, life was good. But behind that, tell us about away from footy, you were really struggling. Yeah, I was struggling from footy. So look, I, I, uh, I come from a small uh, community or town and uh, called Tinga, the same place as Nathan Blacklock, Preston Campbell, PJ Ellis, Bevan French. You know, we're all from the same same town, and our grandparents are all brother and sisters. You know, and uh, GI Greg Inglis's grandfather from there as well, and. Look, I grew up in a community where, you know, you know, we grew up hunting and, and, and swimming and, and playing sports and, and athletics and all that. But, you know, there's, um, you know, I left home when I was, I was 15, uh, came down to Newcastle, went to a private school. And, um, you know, there were things, you know, that, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I grew up in a community where, you know, you, you see certain things and you think they're normal in life, but, but they're not, you know. And, you know, football was my escape to get out of Tinga and, the night's nice giving an opportunity to come down here. And, uh, you know what, on the surface, um, life was great. Winning premierships, buying houses, uh, winning games, getting to play with alongside some some great players, the Ads Immortal and, and so on, you know. But beyond closed doors, you know, I was battling a lot of demons. And back then, you know, like if, if you know, I was afraid and scared to speak about what I was dealing with because there was no supports back then, really, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you said you, you played with some, some great players and, but there's no assistance back then when you came through. As you said, you're only a young kid. Tell us about when yeah. you know you started the football, how that all began, and you're only very, very young. And yeah, yeah, you know, like um, you know, but I was part of the Roosters um, elite development squad before I come to the Knights. You know, and they used to fly me down to to Sydney at that uh, North Narrabeen meet. Used to go to the camps, you know, and uh, Ronnie Palmer used to run us through it. And I, was, I used to go to them, and I was like. 14 and 15, you know, and um, and over time, you know, like um, the, I was actually going to sign with the Roosters when I was a kid, but then the Knights come on the board and on the scene, and you know, I was just very lucky and fortunate that um, that um, you know, I, I got to come to a beautiful place in Newcastle. But you know, rugby, I played rugby league for 
And I say this all the time, you know, a lot of players played rugby league to play Origin and Australia and, and, and to go that next level. I played footy because it took my mind off things. Um, it let me release a lot of stress. And at the time, I was very fast. And, you know, you know, I love scoring tries and that. But, you know, to go to that next level, um, you know, I, I loved footy, but I didn't live and breathe it. You know what I mean? Right. And, and that was the difference between blokes like Matty Gidley, Danny Badiris and blokes like that. You know what I mean? Mm. I mean, uh, it's a shame because, like, as you know, I'm a, I'm a massive Roosters fan. I wish uh, you yeah. did come to the Roosters, but uh, that's that's uh, the, the way, yeah, the way things know. go. Yeah, yeah, you know, because at the time, that's on Richie Allen, Jace Holland, and then it was a, it was like a package, really, from Tinga, you know, like Nathan Blacklock signed with the Roosters and PJ Ellis, and I was actually supposed to sign with them, and I I didn't sign, and I, and I come to Newcastle, so it was actually supposed to be three of us Tinga boys there at the one time, you know. Yeah. Well, mate, you're saying um, you grew up in Tinga, which the people listening, that's in uh, northern New South Wales. Yeah. Mate, obviously from, from your background, um, Indigenous background, racism has been a big thing um, over yeah. the years. Tell us a bit, yeah. like growing up, was it an issue? And then also what about coming through in, in football back in those days when it was not really spoken about? Yeah, so I put up a lot of racism uh, growing up playing in the country rugby league and in the bush as a kid, you know, um, and it was hard to deal with, you know, because there was times where I'd be playing footy and jump in the car with dad and, and just bust out in tears because, you know, when they were calling me certain names and stuff, I didn't understand, I didn't know what they were. And then dad explained them to me and I used to think to myself, you know, like, there's people that I don't even know or don't, I haven't even met and, and they're, they're calling me certain names on the thing, you know. But at that stage too, you know, I was playing like under 12s, under 14s, under 16s and scoring six, seven tries. So maybe they were saying that anger or far off. I'm not quite sure why they said it, but you know, I did experience it growing up um, in my junior days. I did experience it playing in the NRL. And it's funny, you know, I was playing with the Knights at North Sydney Oval against Chris Kawana and... Um, a few other players heard it, and I didn't make a complaint to the refs or to the NRL. It was actually, you know, um, players on the team, and then the referee pulled me up. Oh, I, forget the, I forget his name, but he said, mate, do you want me to make a complaint? I said, you do what you want to do, you know, and from that, which stemmed the, you know, the racism thing in sport, you know, and then Dean Witters later on in life, he, he spoke up highly about it. But the funny thing is me and Chris Kawana played together at South Sydney after that incident and become really, really good mates. And really close, and he's a champion bloke. He's a funny character, and then I, then I understand. You know what? What I learned from that was, in a in a heated battle or whatever, people say things and do things they don't mean. Yeah, and that's what I learned from me and from me and Chris Kawani, You know, and um, like he's a character. He's a good bloke. We had a good chat about it. You know, and uh, I was privileged to play with him at the Rabbitohs. You know. Yeah. Well, you did play with a few teams, obviously Newcastle, the West Tigers and, and the Rabbits. But, uh, yeah. you know, that was a, a, a great career. And I remember watching you come through playing. You're probably the most natural, talented footballer that, that I've seen coming through. And But what introduced you to football? Yeah, so I'll tell you what happened. So God rest his soul now. So across the road was uh, a lady named uh, Annie Margaret Connors, Annie Margaret, and... Um, her son, Elton, was playing for Inverell West under 14s, and they were short of players. And she said, oh, we jump in the car, we need more players. And I said, well, I've got no footy boots, I was 12. <laughs> and she goes, we'll find you a pair. So we go in Inverell, it's 25k away. <laughs> and um, I played under an alias name because I wasn't registered to play, and um, I scored seven tries as a 12-year-old playing under 14. Right. And then when I got home, mum and dad were like, where, where were you? Where have you been? It's dark, you know? Like, you know, because mum and dad were strict. And I said, well, I played footy. And then Annie Margaret's like, yeah, you got to let him play, Ray. Denise, you got to let Owen play. Like, he's 12-year-old. He just carved up the, foot, the best under-14 team. He's got seven tries. And that's when dad was like, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, yeah, I want to play footy. So it got me out of Tinga. It got me, you know, with a new circle of people in Inverell playing footy. And... Um, and, uh, you know, and that's how I started playing footy, you know. She grabbed me from playing footy in the side of the the yard in the house and Tinga jumped in the car and drove into town. <laughs> and the rest is history, bro. You know, <laughs> and that's what happened. Mate, also, uh, you know, as you said, you're quite fast. Um, yeah. Something that I didn't know that you actually represented in 100-metre sprinting. 
Yeah, so I um, course grew up in Tinga, we used to go hunting and, and so um, and play a lot of a lot of footy and touch footy. So I um, yeah went into a hundred metre um, school athletics carnival and um, obviously back in the bushes, barefoot grass and um, I clocked eleven seconds, you know. Yeah, and then. Um, <laughs> Yeah. That's crazy, mate. I, I, I used to be a bit of a sprinter myself, but uh, with spikes and everything, I got probably just into the 11s, let alone yeah, 11. Yeah, I clocked 11 and I said, you're going to the regionals. So I went to regionals and and um, I was clocking like 11 flat, you know, and then I went to Sydney and, you know, um, where the Roosters used to train, that athletics track there. Oh, the uh, ES Marksfield there. At, uh, yeah, at yeah, Marksfield, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so I went down there with my regional teams and it was the state championships and I remember going out on the – onto the track and it was the first time I come across a tartan track. Right. And everyone next to me has got blocks and spikes. <laughs> <laughs> and barefoot. Barefoot, yeah. <laughs> barefoot. No blocks. And I won. No blocks. I won. You, you won. No yeah. no, and you, I won. You won. Yeah, I won. I, I, and um, after that, I said, mate, um, we're picking an Australian team to go to Mexico, Canada and the US and um, you're an Australian team. And then I said, oh, well, I probably can't afford it. You know, I'm the oldest of seven kids. And then anyway, mum and dad and the family all put the money together. I went to America. Yeah. And when I was over there, I got to meet um, Ben Johnson in Canada, the guy that won the 1998 Barcelona Olympics from uh, uh, from the Canadian sprinter. Yep. Donovan, Donovan Bailey. Donovan Bailey, yep. Met Donovan Bailey over there. So when I raced in Canada and Vancouver Island, I was building a stadium for the Commonwealth, Commonwealth Games. And he was still in high school, Donovan Bailey. Uh-huh. So, so over there, they don't have age groups. They've got different systems. And I watched him run, and he blew everyone by like 10 metres. And everyone was like, he's going to be the fastest man in the world soon, you know. And I was just in awe of this kid in school. And then four years later, he ended up being the fastest man in the globe, you know. Yeah. And, then, and I, we stayed in Portland, Oregon at the Lewis and Clark University. And I, I met Carl Lewis. And it was there at Portland, Oregon, where I clocked 10.93 seconds. First time I wore spikes and used blocks on the track. Right. You know, and um, at this day, they're 14 years of age, you know. That's a uh, amazing time for 14. So so what were the... Yeah, I didn't train. I didn't yeah, train. Yeah. Like, I never trained or, or nothing. I just, I just, I don't know, I just, when I got the adrenaline, I, just, I loved the challenge, yeah. you know, and and um, I, I copied and other people around yeah. me, you know. And what were those other guys running at that time? I mean, they would have been a little bit older than you at, at, at 14. Yeah, they were running, yeah, they were, they were, them older guys were smashing right. times, you know what I mean, like, they were probably running ten five, ten sixes like Donovan Bailey. Obviously, you know, was, he ended up running nine something. You know, what I mean, so uh, a point or a second in a in a second is one or two meters in in the yeah. in the race game. You know, and um, but you know, I was very lucky, and fortunate. You know, they went to Canada and uh, West Coast of America, and we Tijuana, Mexico. Don't ask me why they take a group of fourteen year old kids to Tijuana, Mexico, back in nineteen ninety three. But you know what I mean. It's um, it was an eye opener. You know, walking across the border from San Diego, going into Mexico, and at this time, you know, I'm, I'm a, uh, you know, I'm an Aboriginal boy from a three bedroom house in a population of four hundred in Tinga. You know, you're also seven kids, so it was more of an adventure and an experience more than anything for me. Yeah, gee, it must have been a massive experience at that at that age, and 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 as you said, from where you you came from, a little tiny, you know, t- country yeah. town. Man, yeah, like, yeah. it was unbelievable, you know, like little things like I remember going to L.A. and jumping off the bus and we rocked up at the Reebok factory in L.A. And they said, when you go inside, you can load up and grab whatever you want, you know, but you can't go this section over this side. And we said, oh, well, what is this side? And I said, well, this is for a, a kid coming out of uh, college, going to the NBA, going to the um, – it was Shaquille O'Neal. Right. Big Reebok um, <laughs> cardboard cutouts of him, yeah, you know, yeah. of Shaq going to um, – Orlando Magic, you know, and like this is this is like before Shaq hit the scene. They had all these things. Reebok had all these marketing ready to go, and we was like, "Far out, man! Look at the size of this lad. Yeah. He had size like 24, 25 boots, yeah. you know." And and, to, to, and what was he? he? Must he's probably nearly seven foot, wasn't he? He's seven foot something, yeah, Shaq. Yeah. And um, you know, and I remember, and then you know, like twelve months later or a couple of months later, watching him play with Penny Hardaway at a, at Orlando Magic, you know, and I look back, just go, wow, man! Like I remember being at the Reebok factory in LA, seeing that sort of stuff, you know, and then going to Portland, Oregon was another night where mm-hmm. Nike City is, yeah, 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 Nike City. So I remember going to Nike City, and um, that was an eye opener too. You had the first ever Jordans, you know, 
around this thing spinning in this glass thing with security guards around it. Like, it was just like to see the first ever Jordans and to go to Nike City was just an eye-opener. So at that time, you know, you've come through with some of the biggest sports stars before they were big sports stars. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember when I signed with the, with the Newcastle Knights, you know, um, uh, the first people that I met when I came here with Keith Onslow was uh, Billy Peden, Matty Johns and Joey Johns, you know, and... Um, uh, Matty was there. He had a little. He had a wide full falcon where the, the doors didn't open, <laughs> and he had plates and footy boots and footballs and training gear all through the back. And then Joey had a little red Ford laser, you know, and he was a little chunky human back then. Around eighteen, nineteen. But uh, he hasn't changed much, has he? <laughs> no, no, yeah. only his person. <laughs> and um. And we went to Joe Dunnage's gym, you know, and, and I remember the, the day, the words that were there, you know, they put me on the, the old scales, you know, and you move them across the top. And, I, and I, at this stage, I was 15 years of age. I, I ran 110.93 and I weighed 87.5 kilo, you know, and I remember the thing, you know, and we were talking, I was saying, you know, look, and Dad was there, we saying, look, um, there's heaps of clubs weren't known and um, we've been affiliated with the Roosters for a little while and, Maddie and Joey, you know, it was Maddie that said it. it was like, um, we we want to win a competition. We want to win our first premiership here in Newcastle. And we think if you come here and, and we work on and develop you over time, that we could do that, you know, because we've got a lot of other good kids coming through the system. And at this time, I didn't know them, but, you know, you had the Darren Alberts and, and, and blokes like that and coming yeah. through the ranks and, and Richard Swains and, and the and uh, the Kamali boys and that, and um, I just thought, you know, I went for a drive around Newcastle, and once I saw the beach, mm. I was like, man, that's me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sick of, you know, I'm sick of, I'm sick of creeks with no water and, and dirty dams, yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> to see the ocean was just so peaceful. I was going, man, if I could play footy and come to see the beach, and I'm blessed because, you know, it's, mm. it's, it's a lifestyle change, yeah. And so did that, the sprinting, when you were sprinting so well and you've been over to the US and Canada and, and met all those guys, the football overtook that day? You, you just sort of th- yeah, yeah, so so footy was, um, I realised then when I was playing footy because, you know, like on a weekend, you know, I'd, like I said, you know, I'd play uh, 12, 46, uh, under 12s, under 14s, 15s, you know, and so on. And then when I come 15, I'd play 15s, 16s, 17s. And then... You know, I remember making the countryside, New South Wales, um, I meant the, yeah, the countryside versus City when I was 15. Yeah. And I, we played City, and City under 17 had like Adam Dykes, Adam Ritson, Shannon Nevin, all these guns, you know, and I just turned 15, and I was playing wing for country at Bathurst. And, um, and that's when Keith Onslow was like, are you really 15? And I went, yeah. And then um, he said, well, if you're, if you're really 15, you're playing under 17's country, he said, "You can play under, you can play country for another two years, or city for another two years." He said, "I want to bring you to Newcastle." And then Keith was talking with Dad, and that's what happened. I saw him with the Knights, and then I played city seventeen, city seventeen. So I played country seventeen, city city, yeah. Yep. And then what I learned, what I learned my through uh, uh, sprinting and playing footy was, if I can kick and chase, I'm going to beat them even more. Yep. So I developed a kicking game. It was a chip and chase. So I knew if I can beat them now on a stand and start, imagine if I chip and they plant their feet, they've got no chance. Yep. And was that so was, was that the first of that, of the chip and chase? Like the, the, yeah. yeah, the first of the chip yep. and chase, yeah, when I, when, I, when I was playing SG ball. You know, my first year SG ball, it's like 13 games, and I scored like 26 or 30 tries in my first year SG ball, you know. And I was 16, playing 17, and I got player of the year. And then the following year, uh, Malcolm Riley came to town, he's going, uh, if you have another year like you did the first year, we'll, we'll debut you. And then when I debuted, Malcolm Riley's like, I was actually going to debut you earlier, your first year, SD boy, right. not your second, yeah? So with that, t- tell us about that debut. Like, um, how was that feeling? I mean, it was in- at, yeah. at the moment, um, you know, they've got a cut-off of age. Do you agree with an age or should it be just, if you're talented enough, the coach and the, and the club – Obviously, the trainers know what your ability is. They should go through and play, or you think you should be held back a bit? Well, it's a, it's a tough one. It's a hard one, yeah? Yeah. It's a hard one because I'll, t- I'll tell you like this. 
I wouldn't want any kid to come through the system as a 16, 17-year-old like I did with the pressure I had. Right. Yeah? yeah? So I'd go to school on a Friday. I'd play schoolboy football for SFX on a Friday. And then Friday night or Saturday, I'd play NRL. And it's hard for me to go from being a, a teenager, yeah. wanting to hang with his mates and play footy, and being a teenager that has to go out there and mark internationals. Origin players, you know what I mean, like superstars of the game, where I'm still a kid. Mm. Now there's a lot of pressure because if Owen Craigie doesn't score tries, make busts, or win games, you know what I mean. Then I'm just in the backlog with everyone else. But there's a lot of pre- there's a lot of pressure on me because I was this uh, schoolboy superstar, three-time Australian schoolboy only. The record's still there, 25-26, you know. So I played schoolboys year 10, year 11, and 12. To break it, now you've got to be year 19, you've got to be year 10, you know. And But there's a lot of pressure, and that's and, and the pressure is what I couldn't live with. Right. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So like, we'd, go away for ga- we'd go away for games. I couldn't even go to nightclubs. I couldn't go out with the boys at pubs. I couldn't drink because I was 18. Mm. Yeah, it would be but tough, what, yeah. But what I, yeah. Yeah, but what I was doing, every opportunity I got away from the game, I'd, yeah. I'd have a yeah. beer, then I'd have a punt. You know? Yeah. Because I was normal, but there's a lot of pressure involved. With the first grade, you know, debuting there, obviously, and as you were saying, the pressure was there. You're only, what, 17 years of age. Yeah. And you're playing against, like, I think it was the Brisbane side when you did. The greatest, the greatest rugby league side ever seen. Tell us us about that. How was that? Yeah, so... um, so I went to training and um, and at this time I was playing um, SG Ball Reggies and they said, um, you're going to debut this week. I think it was a Sunday game against the Broncos, the mighty Broncos. So in 10 or 13, they had 11 internationals. <laughs> Crazy. And, <laughs> you know and, and you're only 17. <laughs> I'm 17. And uh, we beat them at Marathon Stadium in front of 38,000 people. We beat them 17 to... 17-6 or 17-8, and Michael Ego got man of the match. And the last 15 minutes or 10 minutes of the game, they said, Owie, get up, you're on. And in my head, I'm going, seriously, I'm like, what the fuck's going, what the fuck's going on? You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, 12 months ago, I run around tinging catching rabbits. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I'm about to debut, but not only debut, I'm about to play against my idol. Right. The, the, the person that, when I watch Rugby League, I just go, wow, mm. fuck, I want to be yeah. him, Steve Renouf, the Pearl, mm. you know? And then coming through the ranks, remember Peter Sharp, yep. Sharpie? Yep. So, so Sharpie knew I was, I had a big love and respect to be a Steve Renouf. So then Sharpie used to call me the Pearl, yeah. you know? And I used to love it, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I think, fuck, yeah. you know, being named after such a legend. And, and then... um. After the game, I ran around to the sheds and I got him to sign my footy card after the game. After, the game, after you played against him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, and um, it, um, yeah, it was, um, it was a, it was a highlight of my life. And, and, and you know, some of the stories that we talk about now, Hobo, like it's hard for me to like. I look back at my life and I go, "Well, did that really happen? Mm. Did I?" You know what I mean? Because now, you know, I'm a lot older mm. now and, I, and I've got three kids and. I'm watching the way the game is today and, and the same players do it to do it today. I just think, you know, one, I'm very grateful and blessed to play with such a great club. Two, I'm very fortunate to play with such a great cattle of blokes, human beings, yeah? And and then they're all unique in their own ways and, you know, you, you look at Matty Johns and what he's doing. Yeah. You know, and Joey and, and, and Adam McDougall and, 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 and Husey, and, you know, and so I'll come through at a very... Good time, you know. You did, and uh, we'll touch on that now. That which the nineteen ninety seven premiership, and as you said, all the majority of those players were all on that side. And is yeah. it something that will stick in your memory forever? It'll stick in my mind forever, you know, because there's a lot of things that I remember about that grand final leading up to it. Yeah, so I'd go to training, we'd do ball work, and I'd, I'd go home, and I think, man, you know what? In my head, I keep telling myself. Even if we don't win, fuck, I'm playing a grand final. Yeah. I'm very grateful. I'm very blessed for that, yeah? And 
when you get down there and you get to Sydney and, and we leave a marathon stadium and the crowds and, and the people and the big chief, but, you know, he talks, he goes, you know, what, boys, we're not coming home without a trophy, you know, and, 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 you know, when, when, when Chief used to speak, you know, like he's, if you ever go to war, you know, he's the first bloke you, you go to war with, you know. And so getting down there and then, and then all, all, you know, like that same weekend, the, the Princess Diana funeral, remember? Princess Di's big big funeral. The, the, the same week, yep. Yeah. yeah, so I'm rooming with Adam McDougall at the <laughs> Coogee Bay, you know, the hotel you used to stay. The hotel could you I used to go out there every Selena's and go to every, the, the, the band every week there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah well, I was home rooming with Dougs. And at this time, you know, you probably heard a lot of story about dudes, and they're all true. And um, <laughs> <laughs> so, like, back in my house growing up, there was pictures of Elvis, James Dean, and Princess Diana because my mum loved them. Right. And I'm sitting on the end of the bed, sh- shattered for my mum, and just going, Princess Di. Next thing you know, I've got dudes running around a table and a chair, just going bigger, faster, stronger. <laughs> go, 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 dudes. And I'm just going, <laughs> like, so I can remember a lot of things that happened, yeah? And um, <laughs> while, while dudes was ordering bowls of rice and all these meats and, and veggies and that I'm ordering milkshakes and club sandwiches and, <laughs> <laughs> and ice cream you know and to and to um uh, to experience what I experienced and I'll never forget the night before we had we played the game we held a team meeting team conference you know and um it was pretty pretty amazing you know everyone was in tears and it was just there and then I re- realized you know we're onto something specially you know and mm. whatever tomorrow brings you know it brings you know and we won, you know. Yeah, yeah, amazing, mate. It was an amazing game, and the Johns brothers. Okay, you, you. I mean, I we had a lifeguard conference once in Newcastle, and and Kerbox, uh, mate of mine. You know, he he knew Joey a bit. He, he went surfing with with Hoyo and on the tour. So yeah. we ended up meeting up with Joey, and he he took us to every I think every pub, every nightclub in in Newcastle. And then I had to go to this conference the next day, and oh, mate, I was the crookest person on the on the, oh, on the planet, I reckon. <laughs> oh, Joey's a machine, you know, and everything he does is, is full ball. But you know, like he is the greatest rugby league player I've ever seen. Not only played yeah. with, but I've ever seen. Yeah, and yeah. Um, you know, and and people go, well, what do you mean by that? Well, back then, you know, like when the forty twenty rule came in, remember that? Yep. He would win us games purely by kicking forty twenties. So in the major semi in nineteen ninety seven, when Parramatta had us up twenty four nil at half time, it was yep. Joey's kicking game that got us back. Yeah, right. You know, and little things that he done. You know. Yeah. Do you think the great players? You always hear that they had the vision. They knew which plays to run. Yeah, you know, run to the left for, or run up the middle, and then they yeah, knew that that they, a gap would happen. Yeah, so the good players are ones that um, look and judge body languages. For, so the, the play might be here, but they're looking two, three plays down the track, yeah? Yeah. And they're yeah. looking for that weak niche. And, and Joey had that skill of, well, if you're out on the wing and, and, and he realises you can't jump and you're very slow to react and he'll either kick out, banana kick, kick high, or he was just a genius, bro. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. next it's level. A, it must have been amazing at, at your age coming through and playing with with these type of guys? Oh, look, I, 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 the one thing I did love about not only playing with the boys was getting the training early because we'd play touch footy and Joe would have a bag of balls, like you'd yeah. have a soccer ball or an AFL ball or a rugby union ball or football, and he'd always he'd kick them and do different drills with them so he'd work out the perfect balance of the belly of a football, yeah? And yeah. that's why he'd done things that other people couldn't do, you know, but... Because behind the scenes, him and Maddie, like they worked their asses off, man. You know, yeah. like they worked their asses off. You know, and um, and um, you know, and and then, you know, before you know it, you end up being the eighth immortal. Yep, yep. Mate, there's a lot of banter in footy. Who do you think the, is the, the biggest best. set of the best, the best that, that best. either got either got to you or or just niggled the, the whole time? So, the best, the worst. <laughs> the stinkiest and the softest was Terry Hill. Yeah. Terry Hill, frothy chop, mate. He was horrendous. He used to sing. He used to sing songs to me and niggle at me and 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 um, with that you know that hatred between you know Newcastle and Manly and yeah. and, and at this time Tez best in the world played Origin in Australia yeah. and um, mate he'd stand on your fingers he'd, he'd try and get, he, you know he got he niggled at you like yeah. he was the best but then he had his Coey next to him Hopper. 
Right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, they're both joining, you know, and, and sometimes, like, they, they try and put you off your game, you know, and you got to book them out. But, you know, one thing with Tez is, like, when we both signed at the West Tigers, I didn't talk to him for four or five months. Really? Yeah, we're yeah. both playing in the centres. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And then, and then I end up, you know, me and Hopper were talking, and then me and Tez become real close, school mates, and right. Tez is like one of the funniest blokes I've ever met, you know, and um, and uh, and over time I realised, you know, like, yeah, he can fight Tez, I'm glad I never got into a scrap with him <laughs> because, you know, I know we would have won. Tez would have yeah. won, <laughs> you know? But, yeah, so it, it was funny, you know, and, um, yeah, it was the worst. Well, mate, you went. Uh, f- yeah, obviously, you went to the Tigers. You went to the Rabbits. The Rabbits would have been good because I know a lot of uh, you know Indigenous players seem to enjoy going to to the Rabbits. Tell us a bit about what's the reason yeah. for that. Yeah. So what happened was I I, I left um, the Newcastle Knights because of uh, the racial abuse that I was getting off um, and comments from Warren Ryan at the time, the coach. Yeah. Right. And um, and I still had like three years running my contract at the Knights and I just thought, you know, I fucked this, I can't do this, yeah. man. I'm out, you know, I'm out. And then Wayne Wayne Pierce rang me junior, like, come down, come down and have a chat. And I went down and had a chat and um and, you know, and I met blokes like Harry Trigoboff, yeah. Dawn Fraser, and you know, and Junior, one of the icons, yeah. you know, the legend if you think of Balmain, you think yeah. one man stands out, it's Wayne Pierce, you know, and um I went down there and he goes, Mate, come to the club, I said, you know what? Done. I said to Beavis, work out a deal with the Knights that they paid me out 70, 80 grand. Yeah. Then I signed uh, two, three years with the West Tigers. And um, I went to the West Tigers and, you know, the city life got to me, bro. You know what I mean? Like, it was like, fuck, you could do whatever you want, whenever you want, living in Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> and I lived, I lived in the top um, Italian form. I lived up the top, yeah, when the, when the grouse top floor unit. Next door was Maddie Sears. And then Ben Duckworth and Brenton Pomery, and we're all young kids earning good money living in the city. So what are we going to do? Yeah, that's right. You just you go out. <laughs> yeah, and, I, I know, and I'm a boy from the bush, you know. And anyway, but it was great down there playing at Leichhardt, had a good time, had some good people. And then, um, you know, uh, then, then my mental health was really kicked in, bro, when I was there. You know, I was, I was probably 22, 23, went through a, a breakup at the time because I was dating Jack Newton's daughter at the time. And, and then things were slowly, you know, like um, my, my baby cousin died of cancer at 15. Uh, my nephew got run over the first day he, got le- he learned to walk. Um, and my brother picked him up on the driveway. Um, then my nan passed away. And I thought, fuck it. I'm done. Yeah, and I was seeing a psychologist at the time at the you know at the West Tigers, and then uh, at this stage, I was 23, 24, come back to Newcastle, and I said, "Dad, I'm retired. I'm not playing footy no more. I'm retired." He goes, "Ah, oh, piss off, fucking yeah, yeah. idiot." Yeah, you know, I said, <laughs> "I'm done." You know, did your dad? Do? Did your dad have a big influence on you? Yeah, so dad worked with the police, you know, for twenty two yeah. years, and he had a massive influence. You know, dad mm. come from Moree at the time, grew up on the mission with the old Colour days when the mm. Boomgate used to come, you know, when our kids and dad witnessed a lot of things, you know, and and um, and you know, he moved to Tinga uh, when he met mum in Newcastle. Mum was down here doing nursing, dad was doing building, and um, yeah, look, my family were big influence on me, yeah, especially my mum and, yeah. and my grandparents, yeah, yeah. And then um, I get a phone call. My uncle said, Dad's brother's like, what are you retiring for? I said, oh, fuck, I'm done. Mm. He goes, you're a kid. You're 23. I said, I'm finished. I said, I've won premierships. I've had houses. I've, I've had a great life. But I just, at this point in time, I just need to do me. And then um, I get a phone call from Georgie Piggins. George is like, oh, and I heard that you're um, retired. I'm like, Yeah. Done, George. Well, the first phone call I hung up because I thought it was a G up. <laughs> you, you, might was, you might have thought it was Terry Hill ringing you. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> and um, and ring back and he goes, "No, nah, mate, come down, uh, come to the club and meet with Tugger and myself." And then I um, I went down there and I met with the club and um, I thought, you know what, fuck, what an honour. The heart of Redfern, the people's team. And then Craig Coleman said, "You train your ass off. You do well. You're captain. The, you're captain the club for a few, few games." And that's what got me there. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't the money that got me there. It was the fact that I can, I could captain the Bunnies for a few games. The first rugby league team in history in 1908, 
you know, won a lot of premierships. Uh, Clive Churchill, you know, Eric Sims, had all these great legends come there. And for Owen Craigie to captain the Bunnies for seven or eight games, so when Fletch got injured, I wasn't there, you know, I, I captained them. Mm. And that what, that's what really stands out in my career, yeah, captain such a uh, historical team club. That'd be a magnificent achievement. And, um, yeah. From there, you went and uh, did play a bit in the English Super League. Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I signed three years and I lasted 10 months, yeah. <laughs> 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 I just, I went over on my own and I just, I just couldn't um, adapt to the, to the lifestyle there. It was great. I treated it more like a holiday than a, to go and play, to play footy. And, you know, I'd go to Liverpool on a daily basis, Manchester and, you know, at this time, you know, I'm still a young young man and um, earn a good coin. And um, I just, it, yeah, I just, by that time after, you know, I played against Huddersfield and Stanley Jean, the old uh, PNG captain, his head hit my knee and crushed my right knee. And then after when I was in, I was in the room, I was like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this game. And I said to the club, I said to Frank Endicott in the club, I said, um, I, I want to go back home. I'm homesick. I'm living on my own. I said, I've got no more passion or drive to play this game anymore. Mm. And they said, right, I will fly you home. And I said, yeah, fly me home. So about a week later, I flew home, you know, and I retired at the age of 26, you know. And it's crazy to think that because Cody Walker debuted at 26. Crazy. Yeah, crazy. And I retired you, you, at 26, you know. You, you, the way you've spoken about your career, it sounds like you've had a, you know, you, you've re- retired at 34, you know, yeah, you, yeah, you, you, you've, you've got so much in that short period of time. Yeah, yeah, I've talked to some people and I think, fuck, mate, I thought you were 60. You've been <laughs> But, yeah, you know, it, it, is, it is crazy. It was a crazy, crazy ride. Well, mate, uh, let, let's talk about, you know, the rock bottom. And this mm. comes back to what we are talking about earlier, which will lead into what you're doing now with mental health. Yeah. But when did you realise that you're at rock bottom? I, I think I... I realised where I just couldn't st- couldn't keep battling myself. Yeah, mm. I couldn't keep lying. I couldn't keep I couldn't keep you know kept pushing things aside, pushing them away. You know, and that's what I ever did. I'd run away from the problems. I'd get on the grog. I'd run away from the problems. I'd get on the coke. I'd run away from the problems. I'd go and knock around fucking the wrong crowd. I, I I kept doing it, and it just came a time in my life where you know, like I was like, I can't do this anymore. You know, mm. and and then I'd throw myself in the AA and NA. Then I'd throw myself into different programs and see different counsellors and psychologists, and and then your mind would say, "Well, no, nah, I'm sweet. I don't need this. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sweet. You know, mm-hmm. you don't need help." And then there's a bit of denial and, and this and that. So you start battling. When I started, I realised when I started really battling my mind was a losing battle. Mm-hmm. And then when I went through the separation and things like that, you know, it really took its toll on me. And then I thought, well. There's only way. There's only one way. I can't get living this pain, you know. And that's the phone call I made to Maddie, you know. And, and I went into, I went into rehab, rehab, and, and, and John Hunter and things like that. And I look back now and I just go, fuck, you know. I look back at the life and I go, man, I was so unwell, you know. And mm-hmm. I remember getting out of re- out of rehab, Brown. I relapsed that many times, you know, because mm-hmm. once again the devil started coming back in my mind. I'm an expert. I got the system. I got this. I got life worked out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Why did you make that call to Matty Johns? Because I think over the years, you know, like I I played with Matty, but he was the first guy I met when I, I come to Newcastle and I stayed with him and Trish when I was a kid for a couple of nights, yeah, mm. and um, at New Lambton. And Matty was like a, a like someone that I could trust and, you know, like he's one of them blokes, like he – he would never, never bag anyone out of, out a bad word to say about anyone, you know. And he, he always had to work hard for what he had in footy, because the limelight was on Joey, yeah. Yeah. And, and beyond the scenes, Matty Johns was practically our coach in footy, yeah. He was, he was practically the coach, you know. We'd he'd teach us and learn our things, and you know. And then I, I, I took that in, you know, and I just felt I had that bond with Matty. And I, I could have run. I could have rung anyone. Really, I could have rung anyone. Yeah, and for some reason, Maddie came to my mind, and I said, "Maddie, I'm done." You know, and um, and you know, two years ago now, you know, and uh, yeah, along the way, I've, I've still had some some ups and downs, but you know, through through my 
yeah, exercise and, and what I do now, I realise that, you know what, like, fuck, I'm not an expert. I haven't got all the answers and I haven't got a magic wand. Well, mate, what message now do you give back to um, – I mean, there'll be a lot of NRL stars currently. You know, a lot of kids are coming through – would be going through what you've gone through, but they don't – they're keeping it quiet. Is it because of ego or what's the yeah, reason? Yeah, it's ego. Purely it's ego, yeah. We as um, men in particular, we like to be the, the, the king of the jungle. We, we think we're lions. We're untouchable, yeah. And, and, um, but when things really affect us um, – Health-wise or or mentally-wise, we we don't know what to do. Mm. We run to the grog, we run to the drugs, we do things that we don't want to do because we want to hide it. Because there's a stigma and embarrassment that you know, like if if your wife leaves you for another man, or or, or your or, or you got something wrong with your health or or physical mental health, we just don't want to talk about it yet. Mm. And the best way to escape to do it is that. So what I just taught people today is this: you know what. Go and seek help from your doctor, your GP, or your psychologist, psychotherapist, your counsellors, whatever it may be. Um, talk about it, man. Phase one is always talk. Mm. Always talk. Well, but tell us about the Chase the Energy movement that you've you started. You know, I've, I've, you've been doing that for a while now. But Yeah. So it started by mistake in Newcastle, just something for me to, you know what I mean? If You know, like... Um, I had a rehab and I, you know, I was homeless, I was bankrupt, I was broke. I had nothing, you know what I mean? Couldn't even go into the wife and kids because she didn't even want me back. And I thought, what do I do with myself? What do I do with my life, you know? And I just started exercising. Then I realised how important it is. And then I worked out, well, how can the laziest man in rugby league, me, love exercise? Well, I train for, well, I train for a different purpose now. I don't train for the six-pack <laughs> and, and, the, and the big chest and the big forearms. I train for life, yeah? I train for life. Yeah. And it's medicine, which is good for yep. your mind, body, and spirit. Now, training and exercise could be surfing, skydiving, skiing, bike riding, yoga, dancing, whatever it may be, you know, and um, it's, it's done wonders for me. And, and look, you know what? At the end of the day, I still deal with shit. I still, you know, even now and again, I'm turning left, but I know I've got to come back right again, you know. I ain't no expert. I ain't no professional. But for what I do, I know I've tried everything else, mm. you know, and um, it works. So life's good now? Life's good now, bro. It's good now. I've got the Big AC Foundation up and running. Um, I'm working with uh, uh, Western Sydney, the Department of Education. They've got 300 schools in Western Sydney from low economic socio backgrounds in Western Sydney that I'm working with, doing Zoom with. So Mondays we talk about mental health. Wednesdays we do some exercise tips and Fridays we're doing some some cooking stuff, you know. And <laughs> it, 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 it's funny, but I love it. It's challenging. If someone told me years ago I'd be doing this, I said, you need to be in the madhouse, not me. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it's, it's funny how the world works. And, um, um, you know, I'm doing some stuff in the jails now, Department of Education, uh, hospitals with Macquarie Hospital. You know, they've got the biggest um, uh, clientele of uh, people with mental health issues. You know, they've got a couple of hundred there out at Ride, North Ride. Doing stuff in Queensland, which is great, and, and doing some stuff in communities, you know, and I love what I do. It's not about the Lamborghini and the waterfront house anymore because what I've learned is that this life that we live, this life that we live is on lease. Mm. And you can have a house and be debt-free, but eventually you've got to give it back. 100%, and it's uh, a great way to put it, you know. I think society these days, it's, it's you know, people think it's all about the, the car you're driving, the, the houses you've got, the, yeah. the, all that, but... You've been there as a young kid, come through that and now out yeah. the other side and realised like all these young people that are listening to this podcast or anyone else that's gone through it and, and now older. It's a great message. Yeah, it's a good message, you know. And, um, you know, I've been to 18, 19, 20 countries, you know what I mean? And I've had the houses, the cars, I've had the premierships, everything, you know. But what I've realised through when I hit rock bottom is that when you're at rock bottom, you're there by yourself. People believe in God. People believe in different religions and different faiths because they want to go to heaven after after they die. They want to go to a place, you know what I mean? Because they don't want to go and live with the devil, you know. And when you're living with um, suicide ideation and mental health, you live with the devil every day, yeah? And only you can get yourself out of that. That's when you realise that life is about the little things, yeah? So when I say little things, it's like, for me, it's seeing my kids, for me, it's like seeing the people that I really love and, and trust. And I've done a lot of wrong things in my life, yeah. And and I've got to live with that for the rest of my life, yeah. But I've learned from it. But life, what I learned is on lease. 
Either I can, I can powerball Thursday night 40 million, go and buy all the houses in Lamborghinis, but will that make me happy? No. Some of the most wealthiest people in the country that I talk to have got all the money in the world, but it's of happiness, yeah? Mm. Where do you find that happiness? You know, between heaven and hell. Where do you find it? A lot of people can't find it. They can't. And that's why I judge no one, but the life that we live on lease, because when you die, you've got to give it all back. But what are you going to do with your life while you're here? So I decided to say, well, I want to be an advocate for mental health. I want to help save someone's life. And then when I'm dead and gone, my foundation in the Chase Energy movement is still going to be around, and I can give back to the world. Do you know what I mean? Because everyone's got an expiry date. We all come in with a number, we all go out with a number. Yeah, 100%, mate. Uh, you know, I was always in awe watching you play football, but, mate, even now speaking to you, like, um, I'm extremely proud of where you've come from and, and how you've turned it around and, and what you're doing to help other people. Yeah, yeah, look, no, I am. Um, and thanks for getting me on here too, Hobbit, because I, I love watching you <laughs> on the show. And it's funny, you know, it's some little things, yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's some little things in life, yeah. bro. You know, like, oh, no, after lockdown, I'll take my kids down to Bondi, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. I'll say, that's a kiddie. That's come all right. Up, yeah, come up and say hello. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's some little things, yeah, bro. that's right. It's some little things because life is about memories yeah. and making memories. Yeah. It's not about making money. That's right. Mate, at the end now, I'm going to uh, do a little segment, five fun facts. So I'm going to throw uh, five uh, little questions at you. Yeah, just sweet. Whatever <laughs> comes off the top of your head, mate, it could be anything. Yeah, you go. All right. Last time you cried? Uh, last Sunday when I had to drop my kids off. Right. Favourite takeaway food? Oh, please. Where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> Did someone say KFC? <laughs> Mate, uh, favourite childhood memory? Favourite childhood memory? Going to a South Sydney Rabbitohs game with my dad and the Dragons beat them 7-6. Right. What are you most proud of? Being a dad. Yep. What ridiculous thing has someone tricked you into doing or believing? That UFOs aren't real. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> well, mate, uh, you know, the big, big O, it's been a, a pleasure, mate, having you on Life's a Beach, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll be able to catch up soon down at Bondi. And, mate, thanks again. Yeah, thanks very much, Boyne. I appreciate it. Chase Andy, baby. Thanks, Owen, for coming into the beach shack. It was great having a chat. Now we'll go to Beach Banner. This week in the Beach Shack, it's a warm welcome to Laurie Williams. Loz, how are you? I'm very well. A big howdy to you and your listeners, Hoppo. <laughs> Mate, uh, as you know, we've always played some sort of prank on someone over the years, and we've both copped it. At, at both ends, we've given it and uh, also received it. Yes, uh, I can. I can remember an egg shampoo that you received <laughs> with real eggs yeah. <laughs> in the back room of the old lifeguard office down yeah, yeah, at Bondi. Yeah, yeah, I copped that one that day. Oh, lovely. Uh, but the the guys, I think it was Box or, or one of the guys there, actually got you uh, pretty good. Uh, tell us that story. There are a few. Uh, there are a few. Yeah, reprisals, and I'm pretty sure that I'd done something to him, and his reprisal was that he stuck prawns inside the hubcap of my car. Now, I had kids at the time, and anyone that has had this done to them or knows someone that's had it done to them will know that once the prawns go off and (laughs) it comes... And I think it was a, a pretty hot day one. It was, it was a 30-degree day or something. It was a hot day, and the problem was that, you know, I spent a lot of time looking for where that was coming from. I had no <laughs> idea, no idea whatsoever. So, you know, I had kids at the time. I think I had my two boys, Connor and Bryn, and they were complaining about the smell in the car. <laughs> and I'm looking under seats, no idea. You know, my wife, Lisa... At that time, um, you know, she was absolutely spewing, um, you know, that the car reeked so badly of rotten prawns. And actually, you know what? I don't think I got to the bottom of it. I think um, Box, Kerbox felt sorry for me and, and actually had to tell me that he'd put the prawns inside the hubcap. So 
I was ropeable. Um, <laughs> you know, I had to put up with uh, with with all the complaints back at home about you know the car stinking so badly of, of rotten seafood that I decided <laughs> to square up. The square up. I spent a lot of time thinking about this. We'd been down on, we went on a surfing trip, three of the lifeguards down the south coast, and uh, Kerbox was one of them. Anyway, <laughs> as you do on a on a deserted beach, we'd gone for a surf. We had to duck up in the bushes um, to do what you do, pull yep. his pants down and uh, have a poo. Anyway, <laughs> I happened to be around and took a photo of it, um, and when he had put the prawns in the car i realized that i had this photo of him having a squat in the bushes so i thought well you know what i'm really going to make sure this never happens to me again took the photo um i had it reproduced on a3 paper color and i made sure along with another lifeguard at the time we posted that up everywhere (laughs) everywhere around bronte Bondi. Uh, sad thing was his mother saw it on a, so- on a sign in the middle of the roundabout down at Clovelly. <laughs> Needless to say, nothing was ever heard of from uh, Rodney Kerbox Kerr. He went quiet after that. <laughs> he went quiet after that. Oh, I made sure it was the last slap. <laughs> well, that's it. If you got to get... Uh get done by them, you need to come back with one that's even better and then they leave you alone. Well, I think it's like Al getting back with me, getting back at me with a blue bottle sting sewn into my costumes. Yeah. I never, ever <laughs> went near Al again. Never. <laughs> never played a prank on him. Yeah. Well, Loz, thanks for uh, stopping at the beach shack, mate. It's uh, great hearing these old stories. And it's always a pleasure telling them. <laughs> Up next, I answer letters from the fans. This letter is from Melissa, and she's from England. What school did you go to growing up? Well, pretty much the the schools I went to in primary school was uh, at Waverley uh, Public, which was uh, just the back of Bronte uh, Beach. And then high school, I went to Dover Heights High School, uh, which was pretty much up on... uh, the hill there on the other side of Bondi heading towards uh, Watson's Bay. So my school years were all pretty much around that Bronte Bondi area growing up. And I remember back when uh, Dover Heights, which is now called Rose Bay Secondary School, um, we had a lot of New Zealand Kiwis coming, uh, hanging at Bondi in those days. So I went to school with a lot of those and, and grew up uh, throughout the eighties and have a lot of friends that are uh, from New Zealand. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments or follow us on our social media channels which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, Beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.